Welcome back to Tapping Into Crypto, the podcast for all things cryptocurrency. Coming up in your ears this week is something a little bit different, and we would absolutely love your feedback. If you like the episode, let us know, because we are going to be doing a deep dive with Phantom CEO and CIO, Michael Kong. I'll let Pav and Michael tell you all about his history and story today, but guys, this is one episode with so many insights that you are not going to want to miss. Now, a super quick apology, we did have a technical glitch with recording this one, so the audio is not as crisp and clear as you are used to, but it definitely won't take away or detract from any of the insights that you're going to hear today. Because whether you're a beginner, a Bitcoin veteran, or just crypto curious, I am your host, Alicia Chapman, joined by Pav Hundle today, and this is Tapping Into Crypto. Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of Tapping Into Crypto. Uh, my name's Pav, and I'm here with Michael Kong, FTM, Phantom CEO and CIO. Uh, mate, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, mate. Yeah, appreciate it. I'm really happy to do this podcast and glad to uh, talk to some more Australians. <laughs> Thanks, mate. It's uh, pretty exciting, your story, mate. But uh, I mean, before we dive in too deep, uh, I mean, everyone's got to let us know what their first crypto purchase was. And I guess the big question, do you still have it? Uh, my first crypto purchase was in 2013. Uh, I don't actually remember exactly the date. I think it was kind of like early 2013 and it was Bitcoin on uh, CoinJar. Yeah. Um, do I still have the Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, some of it somewhere. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Uh, it'd be great, um, I guess, just to hear a little bit about your interesting story. I mean, as we sort of spoke about you, uh, uh, an Aussie success story, let's just call it that. You know, having done your studies at the University of Sydney, ending up, you know, now at the helm of the Phantom Foundation. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that journey and what that's been like? Yeah, sure. So um, it, was, it was quite a long journey. So, you know, I first heard about Bitcoin actually in 2012 uh, because I was a big fan of someone kind of notorious in the space called Peter Schiff. And back in 2012, Canada's radio show called Schiff Radio, right? It was on like Sirius XM. It would be like during the day on like US time, which was like in the middle of the night, my time, right? So, was, so instead of going to sleep, I would like always listen to like the show live. And sometimes he would talk about Bitcoin and he was a big skeptic about Bitcoin all the way back then. Um, he has largely the same criticisms of it as he does now. That's amazing. But he would like interview people on the show that, you know, quite famous in the space, you know, for example, like Olaf Carlson Wee, he was a Coinbase at the time and he'll kind of debate with them. So I was kind of like a Bitcoin skeptic there. I heard about like DigiCash before by David Schwamm in the 1990s. And I figured, well, this just appears to be like a rehash of that. So it will kind of come and go and it won't really be around, right? But then in 2013, mm. in kind of like the spaces I've been in, which has kind of been like the more like libertarian circle, shall we say, that are more open to like decentralization and different forms of money, you know, they were talking about more about like Bitcoin to me and kind of educating me about it. And I kind of figured out, well, actually, maybe this is like a real thing. So I kind of like got some of it myself, but I didn't really like participate much in the development of any like uh, technical work, that sort of thing, um, because I wasn't back then like interested in working in like the payment space, right? And kind of my background was I was studying on um, finance and IT at the University of Sydney at the time. So I was doing what's known as like a double degree. I was studying like effectively two degrees at the same time, which you can do in most Australian universities. But then I like, come like 2015, 2016, there were some people around Sydney that were very, very bullish about Ethereum. And one of them was doing a class with a friend of mine. And he was telling us about how Ethereum is like the future and it's going to be so great. You can do these smart contracts and you can program all of this functionality into it. And he was already talking about, you know, uh, like DeFi related activities, putting like shares on the blockchain, clearing and, and, and settlement and that sort of thing. And I was very much interested 
in that. So me and a few people were just like playing around with Ethereum, just like coding smart contracts, seeing how it worked, and really started getting involved more in the community. Because back then, there were monthly events called Sid Ethereum. And each month, there would be like a series of speakers, um, sometimes one, but I think up to three. And, you know, we managed to present at that once just talking about like, you know, some research we had been doing for an organization called the Capital Markets Cooperative Research Center, which is one of these like government and, and privately funded institutions that was doing research into digital currencies, as well as other things like, like healthcare related activities. So back in uh, 2017, I'd also started doing a thesis with my old supervisor, Bernard Schultz, who recently joined us at Phantom just, just last May. And he was very much interested in how to apply his programming languages knowledge, which has to do with how you execute programs and how do you apply them to smart contracts? And essentially, like, how, how, how do you like automatically like do bug checking? Not at the, like the solidity level, but at the lower level at the machine code, but actually how, um, uh, smart contracts are executed, how programs are executed. So I'm actually part of a research group under him. I managed to do like my final year software project, my honors thesis, really understanding like how smart contracts work at a very like technical level, I guess you would say, and managed to produce like a couple of papers out of that. And at the same time in 2017, I was working at a blockchain. Uh, development firm uh, called Blockade, and they're quite a big firm now. Uh, back then, I was the first software engineer, and we worked on a few projects. One of them was called MySake, which is now uh, called like Bolivar, which is quite a big company about putting like company data on the blockchain. So it's kind of like a SaaS-based product. And also, I got involved in a few other projects. Most famously of all is probably like synthetic network token, SNX. Oh, wow. So back then in 2017, it was known as Haven. And the model was like kind of like transformed a lot further than what initially began as. So I did a bit of work with Blockade on that before I, I left to create my own cryptocurrency fund in the space. And so I managed to partner with a few people at the CMCRC that I got to know. And, and I was a bit surprised that they wanted to partner with me because I was going around, you know, uh, talking to a few people about launching like a fund in the space. And, you know, obviously a lot of people were like, you know, rejecting me it was like, well, back then I was like 22, 23 years old. I didn't have any experience, but in order to run a fund, you need to, one, you need to raise money. And two, you need like an AFSL, an Australian Financial Services license. Otherwise, you're not legally allowed to like uh, operate um, and manage other people's money. So fortunately, I managed to partner up with a couple of people that came from traditional finance from the ANZ Bank. And they were very much interested, to my surprise, in cryptocurrencies. And actually, I remember Steve Blotty, you know, having some meetings with him and he sounded quite interested. But then I really knew that he was very much interested when literally at like 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, I don't think you'll mind me telling the story. He was sending me articles and asking me what my thoughts were. And because I stayed up late, you know, at like 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, I'd be like replying to him like day in, day out. And that's how I knew that he was really interested because someone yeah, that's crazy. You know, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't be sending articles that early in the morning, right? And so eventually we managed to set up a fund together which began uh, beginning of January 2018, which just happened to be at the start of the bear market for 2018. So it was a very hard period. But we were also mm. consulting on a few ICO projects and an advisory. And one of them actually happened to, find, uh, to be Phantom because one person on our team knew someone in Korea who wanted to create like this new project, right? So Phantom was originally a frame project. And we were told that, okay, we had like associate professors on board, postdoctoral people on board, and they figured out a way of processing transactions quite differently from like how Ethereum does it. Yeah, it's really different. Using this like asynchronous model, right? And mm. so with this asynchronous model, you know, they're telling us, oh, we can confirm transactions faster, cheaper, and better. And we're going to use this new technology for like food technology-based applications, supply chain management, that sort of thing. Uh, it turned out not exactly to be true, right? So it turned out to be vaporware. That the test net really? the technology they talked about wasn't true. 
the paper that they had, technical paper they had given us was not their own work. It was plagiarized. And so we basically had to like rebuild the team from start. And so that's where like Andre like really came in. So Andre was involved in the beginning about like, you know, restructuring the team, coming up with ideas on how to actually achieve the consensus that the Koreans were talking about because his background was very much in distributed computing when my background wasn't exactly in that space as well. And so we kind of had to like rebuild a team. And, you know, in about one and a half, two years, we managed to launch the mainnet and to get to where we are now. So sorry, that, that's a very long answer, but that's, no, that's, that's kind of my whole story in quite a lot of detail. Yeah. It's great. Like, I definitely am very familiar with the end of the story. I would have never guessed Peter Schiff was involved at the very start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I still listen to him, but like, I, you know, I agree with some things he says. I disagree with other things that he says. You know, in the end, it's just about like critical thinking, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think one of the lessons I learned back then when I was younger was, you know, don't just like follow someone and say, wow, this person is smart. I'm going to believe everything he, he says because he's just smart, right? He's like, no, no, no. Think for yourself. Think if what they say is like logical, if it makes sense, if it's evidence-based or if it's like biased and doesn't really make sense, right? Like that, that's what it really comes down to in the end. No, mate, that's sound advice. Um, it's just, yeah, I always just find it hilarious that no matter what I do, somehow his name just keeps popping up around me. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, just to cater to a lot of the different listeners that we have on the show, I mean, that's definitely a very, like I would say, very concise, you know, depiction of what the phantom value proposition is, I guess, compared to the Ethereum sort of model. What would be like your elevator pitch to someone who's pretty crypto naive and not too sure what Phantom is? Like, how would you best describe what Phantom does? Yeah, so Phantom is its own like blockchain. It's kind of similar to like how you have Ethereum. So you have the Ethereum chain. It confirms transactions. You have smart contract capability on there. Phantom is similar in that respect. So we do have like smart contract capability. So the way that you like interact with smart contracts on the Phantom network is pretty much the same as the Ethereum network. So think about like activities like DeFi, NFTs, those sorts of smart contract activities. You get the same sort of features on Phantom. But what really makes us different at the moment has to come down to our consensus. So the way that we confirm transactions is in a much more different manner. So whereas like Ethereum confirms transactions one block at a time, we confirm multiple blocks at the same time. And that's what I mean by asynchronous processing of transactions. It's basically confirming multiple blocks at the same time. And when a block gets finalized, which is about two-thirds plus one of the total validating power of the network, then you only need one block confirmation to make sure that your transaction is confirmed. So there's no need to wait for like five block confirmations, six block confirmations afterwards. There's no possible like reorg, like what happened with Ethereum recently, how seven blocks got reorg. I think it was about sometime last week. And, and this scalability increases your network throughput. And when you increase your network throughput, it means that you can process more transactions which means lower transaction fees. So just to give a comparison, you know, you might go to Curve and you might do some like smart contract interaction on Ethereum and that might cost you like 50 or even like $100 to do it, right? On Phantom, the equivalent would maybe be like 50 cents. And so it's orders of magnitude cheaper and it confirms really fast. Like the block confirmation times right now for Phantom are on average about 0.8 or 0.9 seconds. And so you're really experiencing like a, a much better user experience cheaper transactions, faster transactions, and still secure transactions because every validator node is equal to one another. They all participate in consensus together. There's no like one node controlling the network. There's no master node relationship or anything like that. All validator nodes are created equal and each of them are block producers. So you really have that level of like decentralization while having that increase in network throughput. I think that's, that's great. Yeah, basically faster, 
you know, just as safe and yeah, scalable, which I think is, is kind of the key word that's sort of floating around now, especially with, you know, gas fees getting up to some pretty crazy levels. Just most recently, I know there was all that buzz about the 48 Yacht Club uh, land auction that resulted in some fees and up to thousands of dollars, which was insane. So it's a real problem. And it's it's crazy that it's still a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty cool, I think, even from my side, seeing the crypto landscape evolve to the point at which it is today. I mean, do you feel like from the point at which you started really sitting up the helm of the foundation at the, the start of the 2018 bear cycle to, to, I guess, what you could probably describe, you know, the, the present bear cycle, would you say the sentiment is the same? Is, is there more sort of confidence behind the tech now that we've sort of seen it at play for a bull run that we've just sort of seen that everyone's kind of just lining up to see where the tech is going for the next phase of the market? Yeah, I think there's a number of like notable differences between, say, the 2018 bear and the 2022 bear market, if you can call it that, which I, I, believe, I believe we're in a bear market. There's both good and, and, and bad comparisons. So like the sort of like bad comparisons are that in 2018, we never experienced this level of like inflation, at least reflected in the official numbers. I mean, the great websites like shadowstats.com that kind of like show you what the real numbers actually are because the government obviously has an incentive to understate the numbers. But even by the government's own metrics, inflation is at like, you know, decades high, right? Like what is it in the States? Like over 8%. In Australia alone, it's over 5%. And they're predicting, you know, like a rate rise today and they're predicting inflation even like higher than that. The politicians and the, and the central banks are admitting it. So we've got like high inflation all around. Um, in consumer inflation, that is. Whereas in 2018, you didn't really have that level of high consumer inflation. You also have like a lot of issues around like supply chain to do with say like what's happening in like Ukraine, right? So back in 2018, yes, we've had wars. We've always had wars, unfortunately, like year on year, but we've had wars to the extent as we're having in Ukraine, right? And, and the war is sucking up an enormous amount of resources. I think the president of Ukraine said he requires like $7 billion a month just to keep his nation alive, right? Not to mention like all the issues around, you know, the increase in the cost of gas, et cetera. And you didn't necessarily have those issues in 2018. So there are a lot of like bad macroeconomic conditions that I think are worse in 2018. However, on the flip side, when it comes to the technology, the technology is far more advanced than it was in 2018. There's been a lot of progress over the past four years around scalability, around different chains that have come out, such as Phantom, around different use cases as well. So we now have like, use cases in the crypto space that I think are like long-term, very sustainable and really add like a lot of value to users' lives, right? For example, like with DeFi, the fact that if you code a smart contract correctly, it's transparent, it has accountability. If you do it correctly, you really can have like a foolproof system where you know that you don't have to trust a third-party broker, when you know that your funds are really safe in the smart contract, when you know exactly how the smart contract will operate, and you know that you don't have to rely on a third party and the delays in the time and the costs associated with using a third party broker. You can just interact with this smart contract with other people around the world, anywhere around the world that has an internet connection in a peer to peer manner. That's a real value add that's not going away. Same story with NFTs. You know, it's a real value add that's not going away. You know, the ability to digitize items and to trade them with a fully audible chain is extremely powerful. Back in 2018, I remember the only use case for Ethereum, to be honest, was ICO. And, you know, Phantom did an ICO. There are many other projects did an ICO. So billions of dollars that were raised. But, you know, when you use cases just for fundraising, eventually that kind of like sizzled out as you kind of like have a big uptrend in the market and then you have a downtrend, right? So the fundraising use case is still there. I think it's an important use case. But obviously, that's very volatile, you know, with regards to like market conditions. Whereas like, uh, DeFi and NFTs are much more sustainable long-term use cases. So I, I always think that crypto in the long run is like a secular bull market, right? You know, you're always having at each cycle from a, a bull to a bear, 
to a bull, you have like higher highs and higher lows, right? So for example, yeah. like even in this like 2022 bear market, we haven't come close to meeting the high point of the 2017 to 2018 bull market, right? And so I believe that as the technology increases, as it gets better, as we get users, the cryptocurrency market is going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to the same number of users that we have, say, with the internet, right? And so a lot of people were like a surprise to hear that in 2018, you actually had more transactions done on the Ethereum network than in 2017. And people were saying, well, wait a second, like, didn't Ethereum go down, you know, massively from like $1,300 to $88? Yeah, that's true. But people still use it. And so I think yeah. in the long run, you get more and more users over time. And, and that's kind of my belief about the markets. I mean, this is not like financial advice. I'm not telling anybody to like buy and sell anything in particular, but I'm just saying like, this is my personal view as to like how the market grows over time. No, that's great. Like that's, um, again, just to sort of hear your perspective, because I mean, a lot of our listeners have been around for, I guess, that long to sort of see, you know, you hear so much, right? But it's not until you actually understand what's happening on these community levels, you know, within the development space to understand that, you know, there's still value to be added, even when the markets are down, like people are building, people are getting busy. Crypto is complicated. Like it is what it is. Like, you know, I always like say to people, you know, you go spend money on your credit card at the shops, you just swipe it. You don't think about what's happening on the back end, right? Like that's exactly, yeah. We're kind of waiting for the crypto adoption curve to hit the same point where people just accept that something works and those who want to understand what's under the hood can just go find out what's under the hood. Um, yeah. And I think uh, that's a really good point. I think we'll get there in the end. It's kind of like interesting, yeah, like watching too. like old videos of people when they start using the internet. Uh, you, you can Google like 993 like internet and there's all these talk shows and like, oh, I'd like to tell you about the internet. Oh, what is this? Oh, well, this is a keyboard. Whoa, what is that? And well, you see, you got a Netscape and you click on the browser and everyone's like, whoa, this is like crazy, right? And I yeah. feel like we're kind of at that stage right now where, you know, the equivalent is like, hello guys, I'd like to talk to you about like blockchain now. Whoa, what is that? Well, you see, you open like MetaMask. Whoa, what is MetaMask? Geez, yeah. what's a wallet, right? Like, and I think, you know, the, the user experience will get better over time. Yeah, uh, I think, right. but, but like in terms of like, you know, the coding and the software, but I also think more and more people will get kind of used to it. They'll kind of, kind of get used to like how blockchains work. They'll kind of see the benefits of it. And I think over time, there'll just be like natural, like uptake and natural adoption. You know, kind of like what we see all over the internet. Like, obviously, we got better browsers. We got more powerful computers, et cetera. We got more applications. But we also got more users who just kind of got used to using a browser. Now everybody knows how to use a browser. Now everybody knows how to use a computer. It's not, you know, it's like it's like second nature, right? And I think it's going to be the yeah. same thing with blockchain technology. It's going to be kind of like second nature, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think if we're going to draw similarity, like I think this is a great one because for me, it's like we're waiting to not have to dial our modem to log on to the internet. Like we're not waiting. You know, everyone's got the MetaMask. You're hitting accept. Everyone right now just plugs into their computer, turns it on, and their broadband connection is active all the time. It's kind of like yeah. just waiting for that that singularity moment where it just it's just always on. I don't know. Yeah. It probably can't be because it's always got to be a signature. But I feel like there's something there where it's just a bit jarring at the moment. Yeah. Well, e even with the signature, I mean, it is possible to like offload the signature. Obviously, there's trade-offs in doing that. But in the end, it very well might be the case that people are comfortable with signing their own transactions. You know, it, it's just going to be the case that people get used to it. You know, just like they got used to using a keyboard and a mouse and a browser. Who knows? It's a bit hard to tell here. <laughs> well, it's exciting. I think it's really cool. And I guess that's a that's a nice segue into you know where Phantom is going next. I mean, you guys have got a, some pretty key upgrades coming in the near future. Can you sort of talk to a few of them with the the FVM model? Yeah, sure. So a big focus of the foundation is really on the underlying technology, right? And it comes down to like really three things. It comes down to the core technology, so that's related to the consensus technology. 
how do you, you know, improve consensus? How do you confirm transactions faster? How do you confirm transactions more efficiently? Uh, the middleware, uh, which you talked about, which I'll get into a bit more detail, which is about how do you execute smart contracts in the most secure and efficient manner? And the third point has to do with like infrastructure. Like, can you provide the best infrastructure in terms of like servers, in terms of like auditing systems for smart contracts, in terms of allowing developers to really build secure and fast and cheap smart contracts in the best way possible, right? So those are like the three angles in terms of our tech development. And we're actively hiring more developers. So, you know, we're expanding the team right now, which has been great because there's a lot of technology problems to be solved. Specifically, as you mentioned, when it comes to the middleware, what we're working on there is like um, several fold. When I talk about the middleware, what I really mean is like the, the software layer that ex- actually executes smart contracts. So mm-hmm. when you interact with a smart contract, it's not just like, oh, you submit a transaction to the chain and then the smart contract somehow like get processed by like the chain itself. What happens is that the, the smart contract, the instructions get sent to a software layer known as like the middleware or the virtual machine. And the smart contract that someone has written gets translated into these machine code instructions that what's known as a virtual machine can execute, right? And so they execute these instructions. And that's exactly how these smart contracts actually get processed on chain. And what that means is that you have a software layer there that needs to be running in an efficient and reliable and secure manner in order to make sure that A, you get the result that you expect with your interaction with the smart contract, whether it's like a DEX swap, whether it's an entity interaction, it's all the same kind of like transaction and two, that it's done in the fastest way possible. So we did like a research grant with the University of Sydney with my old professor, Bernard Scholz, um, back in 2018, right? And it was to fund research into like how do you make smart contracts execute more efficiently? Because what, what I learned in my research in 2016 and 17 with Bernard and what we've learned also subsequently is that the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, the standard technology that we use and that Ethereum uses to process smart contracts, it does work well. Like obviously it works. Billions of transactions have been done through it. You know, billions of dollars worth of value have been executed via the virtual machine. But there are a lot of inefficiencies related to the design of it and also related to the design of how smart contract data gets like sent from on-chain to the virtual machine and back and forth. And so what we want to do now is kind of take the, the way that you execute smart contracts to the next level. And so what that means is, for example, like changing the way that you read and write data from the virtual machine on-chain and back to the virtual machine. That's also coming with a new virtual machine design where you can actually have automatic smart contract bug checking at the virtual machine level, which doesn't currently oh, wow. exist with the EVM. And we also is about eventually replacing the Go Ethereum Geth client that we use as part of the middleware with our own client that can process transactions a lot faster than the current client can, which is like bloated in in several ways. Um, so there's like a lot of like technical detail I could kind of get into as like what those problems are and what the potential solutions are. But that's essentially what we're working on. And it's all about like how do you execute smart contracts more effectively? And you know, the more complicated the transaction that needs to be executed, the more benefit you'll get from this improvement to the middleware stack. And I think this is a, a big area that like actually quite a few people have identified, including at Ethereum mm. and other projects. But it's something yep. that a lot of other projects haven't really focused on because they're more focused on different kind of scaling solutions, tackling technology, other technology problems. I think other technology problems are important, but I think also this technology problem is very, very important because if you scale other parts of the network, when you do nothing about the performance of executing a smart contract, then the, the performance improvements that you get from other parts of increase in scalability are not going to be as much as if you solve this problem specifically as well. So we're very much focused in solving this problem to do with the middleware. And it is one problem out of several that we're working on right now. 
Yeah, that's really cool to hear you talk about that. And I think I'd like to touch on that next. Like you did identify that some other chains are approaching it from a different angle. I mean, everyone, you know, even quite new to the space is well aware that, you know, Ethereum's moving from that proof of work to proof of stake. When, who knows? It's been sort of talked about for some time now. How do you sort of foresee that playing out? I guess in your just personal opinion, do you feel like that's almost like a play to try and make, you know, layer one solutions like yours more obsolete? Or do you feel like there's still underlying tech, like more problems like you just identify where that middleware is still quite key in being a viable solution? Yeah, well, one of the fundamental issues with Ethereum is that um, they have talked about like having a new like virtual machine. They have talked about executing smart contracts in a more efficient manner. But um, there simply hasn't been any focus on that. Like I've read EI proposals, which are these Ethereum improvement proposals. So basically, these are proposals that people um, from the community have kind of like proposed to the Ethereum core development team and said, you know, here are the reasons why we should kind of like follow on this technology path and here's how it works. And there have been proposals around how to improve the execution of smart contracts. But usually they've actually been rejected without much commentary on it. And kind of my impression of the Ethereum core development team is that because there are a lot of technical problems, because these technical problems are very, very hard, I think they're very focused on, as you mentioned, transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake, right? With the so-called Ethereum merge, right? Because right now they have a hybrid chain and they want to merge it to like one chain and it's called like Ethereum 2.0. I think with Ethereum 2.0, the Ethereum core development team leader himself has said that it's not really going to have an impact on gas fees, right? And so that's a, that's still a big problem that's going to exist even when Eve 2.0 will be out. I mean, it will be more efficient, in my opinion, because of like the efficiencies of proof of work, which I guess is like another discussion. There are like other performance improvements there. But I think another fundamental problem with the consensus is that there will still be confirming blocks one at a time. It will be still a linear confirmation process when it comes to processing transactions. And if you process mm. blocks, you know, one at a time, just intuitively, you know, it's always going to be slower than if you process, say, three blocks or four blocks or five blocks at the same time. And so that's something that Phantom can do. It can do it in a, in a secure way. It can do it in a way that you still get the final ordering of transactions. You get a consistent ledger across all nodes in the network. You know, it's empirically proven that that's, that's the case and we're trying to formally verify it as well. But that's like an improvement that's not really down the line for Ethereum. So it's still like, you're still processing transactions sequentially. So I think there's still going to be a lot of inefficiencies with Ethereum. I think at the middleware level, I think at the core development level, and, you know, history has shown, as with our chain, to be fair, as with like all technology in the end, that the timelines that you think it takes to solve a problem usually takes quite a bit longer than that. Because you encounter issues along the way. It's like the normal software development process. Yeah, you encounter issues along the way. You you know, you find problems, you gotta test and test and test, and then eventually you release something that can be like really good in the end, right? And so I think Ethereum has experienced that, that kind of problem, which is why I think you know the merge is supposed to be taking place, I think, in a couple of months, in like August. I think it'll take longer than that, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that, that's that's great to hear your thoughts on that one. I personally you know, being in the space for quite some time now as well. Like I, I, I saw the layer ones coming leading up to that bull run in 2020. And I just thought this was probably one of the greatest sort of value propositions we've seen in the, in the crypto market for some time now. And you know, lo and behold, like the whole, you know, DeFi summer that we had leading up to the bull run and then just seeing the NFT, I guess, space take off most recently, it's, it's kind of shown, you know, the general theme and notion was that, you know, there was room in space for, for companies like the Phantom Foundation, you know, as well as other layer one solutions out there that have been quite a hit. And, and for me, like, you know, community is a lot, I guess, with the whole crypto space, you know, you need to attract the talent, you need to attract the developers. 
I know, I know you guys, you know, don't spare no expense when it comes to making funds available to sort of help innovation in the space. Do you kind of feel that you, you have to be supportive of, of the ecosystem to plan for the future? Like I think the most recent grant you guys have put together is about $480 million. I just sort of wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, why you put so much value on um, trying to attract people to the space. Yeah, sure. So like the Phantom Foundation, you know, we really have two aims, right? One is to work on the technology, you know, which I kind of discussed in, uh, I guess, like a good level of detail on, on this podcast. And the other objective that we have is to grow um, the ecosystem, right? To like, you know, engage in, you know, marketing and PR to really tell people about Phantom, right? Tell people about the technology, to tell people about what you can do on Phantom, the benefits of Phantom, and, and just to like try it out and just to do as much outreach as possible. And it does include also helping the existing projects on the Phantom ecosystem. So the developer grant that you mentioned, so we're launching, so Gitcoin, which is like a fundraising platform that exists on Ethereum, is going to be deploying on Phantom. And I hope sooner rather than later, because once it deploys on Phantom, every month or so, projects will be able to like gather community support as to like the projects that they want to, um, they want to fund in the ecosystem, right? And the foundation will kind of like match those grants and, and also donate money to like what the community wants, right? So instead of the foundation you know, top down being like, okay, we're going to pick winners and losers, which is a problem, which is kind of like dictatorial. It's kind of like, yep. well, we know what's best for the chain. We'll, we'll pick winners and losers. We don't want to do that. We want the community to kind of decide. So that's kind of like the ethos behind it. That being said, in the meantime, we do support many projects on the Phantom ecosystem in a variety of different manners. You know, we do cross marketing support. So for example, you know, we, we tweet regularly, as you can see on our Twitter about projects, about what they're doing, about the recent announcements. We do like AMAs with projects in particular, like Twitter spaces, where I go in there or members of the Phantom team go in there and kind of talk about their project and to kind of talk about Phantom as well and to kind of like broaden their audience. We do like free code reviews as well. We also provide like free legal advice from our in-house legal counsel, Fred Pucci. We're also um, in talks with getting uh, a strong um, software auditing company to deploy software on our chain to automatically audit the smart contracts that exist on Phantom. So we kind of like, you know, benefit like projects in a variety of different ways not just like you know in terms of financing and we do invest in uh some mm -hmm. projects on the phantom ecosystem we don't do that many investments but we do do some investments that where we think the project is really good and can you know be of great benefit to the phantom ecosystem so we help in like many ways and on a daily basis we're always talking to projects we have a team of four people that always talk to projects always have meetings on virtually every single like weekday so there are a lot of projects deploying on phantom even now, like during the bear market, in particular, like NFT, like related projects, you can kind of see it on mm -hmm. Twitter. And it's amazing because I think we're getting still a lot of growth. We have a lot of transactions still being processed on chain. I think in the past like week, it's averaged about 800,000 on a daily basis, which is far higher than it was like a year ago. So there's still a lot of growth happening on Phantom. Obviously, there's like a bear market, which like no one likes. But our objective is that like, you know, we continue building and growing the way that we are right now and solving all these technology problems. When the market starts to pick up again, which I believe it will inevitably do, Phantom's going to do very, very well out of it. And that's just kind of my personal opinion. Yeah, fantastic, dude. That, that's amazing. And I guess just to, I guess, wrap this up and, you know, put a bow on it, what would you say, I guess, is the, the themes that you're currently seeing across the space? And like, what, what, I guess, are you pegging as potential problems that will be solved or value propositions that will sort of lead the way, I guess, for us into the next sort of potential cyclic bull run, if it were? Yeah, so we're already starting to see like uh, strong use cases emerge for blockchain technology. So, you know, the two that are most popular in the space right now are like DeFi and NFTs. 
for gaming and metaverses, which is related to like NFTs. But there are actually are a whole bunch of other use cases that I think are going to like emerge in prominence over the next few years. One of them is kind of like supply chain management. I think you'll see a lot more about it. You know, it, mm. it's, it's not seen as like very sexy or very interesting, but blockchains do solve a very important problem related to supply chain management, which is like, how do you get like a strong audit record on the supply chain that you know isn't, isn't going to be manipulated by certain individuals or certain people in the supply chain? So that's like an important use case. And you're starting to see like more and more like companies and governments start to like engage in that use case. I think you'll see a lot more of that. And I think another use case you'll see a lot more of is related to like P2P insurance. So you're going to have a lot of like, insurance products i think kind of like released on chain and i don't mean insurance products related to like insuring like on-chain events right so we already have our products that work pretty well on insuring like DeFi products and that sort of thing and they do serve a real use case but i think you're going to see a lot more like real life insurance products also be on chain because you can codify an insurance product and create like an nft out of it each individual insurance policy in a group so any sort of insurance that you feel that, that you can think about in real life you know motor insurance life insurance, other forms of insurance, you can create a community around those insurance products where like, you know, a community gets together, they put in the funds. When somebody needs to make a claim, the community kind of evaluates the claim and it kind of resolves a lot of issues around insurance. So it resolves the problem around the moral hazard where right now when you claim, when you make a claim, you're kind of incentivized to claim as much money as possible, right? Because you're interfacing with a big insurance company and your objective is to get as much money from them as possible. And there's no real accountability because people don't know when you're claiming, how much you're claiming for, only the insurance company knows that, right? And that information is kept private. Like another problem is that, you know, with big insurance companies, they have a lot of bureaucracy, they have a lot of employees, they spend a lot of money um, being a middleman. And so all of that money gets taken out, has to be paid for, and that gets paid for by premiums, right? So theoretically, if you can set up like a DAO that operates in the correct manner, you can ideally lower people's premiums. And in fact, people who take on insurance policies may actually make money from it. Why? Because the DAO, for example, were taking those funds because the insurance funds are not paid out like right away, you know, unless somebody does a claim like right away, those funds can be invested, for example, across a various CFI products earning yield, right? And so that yield can go back to the DAO holders and can be given back to the people paying the premiums as a form of like, you know, like a rebate, for example. So that's like an interesting idea that I know a few people are, are working on. And I think could be quite big in the future over the next few years in the space. That's amazing. Oh, I never really thought of that angle. A DAO that gives you dividends for having health insurance. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, no, that's yeah, great. Theoretically, um, it's possible. Yeah, theoretically, right? <laughs> it's all theoretical. But I just want to, yeah, thank you for taking the time uh, out of your day to come have chats with us today. I mean, obviously, Phantom is something I've been following for quite some time now. And I just want to congratulate you guys on the awesome growth that you've had, you know, over the coming years that we've just had most recently uh, and obviously all the best to you with the upcoming consensus festival uh, and mate yeah thanks again michael awesome thanks so much mate yeah i really appreciate the time and thanks so much for the opportunity thank you so much for joining us for today's show if you liked it don't forget to head over to the gram and join us at tapping into crypto and before we finish up just a general disclaimer that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and the opinions on this podcast belong to individuals and are not affiliated with any companies mentioned any advice is general in nature and does not take into account your own personal situation if you're looking to get advice please seek out the help of a licensed financial advisor we'll talk to you soon 